Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEB 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEB1450.com. Now, for those of you who have not done so already, make sure that you are connected to us on social media. So find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You may miss the live stream or the uh, the radio, the AM broadcast, but you can always go back. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right, folks. Um, our guest today is Dilshad Ali. Uh, she is the blog editor at Hot Hijab, the leading hijab company in the U.S., uh, where she's in charge of covering and coordinating coverage of all things pertaining to Muslim women. She's a former managing editor of the Muslim channel at Patheos.com, the largest multi-faith religion and blog site in the world, where she was also the editor-in-chief of Alt Muslim, a microsite at Patheos Muslim for seven years. Now, she personally blogs on the intersection of faith, family, and autism, and has covered the American Muslim beat for various media outlets for nearly two decades. Dilshad also serves on the Board of Religion News Service and has worked on autism advocacy projects and is on the Board of Advisors for Muslim, which is Muslims Understand and Helping Special Education Needs, and is the proud mother of three. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Dilshad. Wa alaikum assalam, brother. How are you? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing well, and it is great to have you on the program to talk about uh, the work that you do, you cover a lot of bases, wear a lot of hats. Um, and before I get specifically into those, um, I want to just take a moment to continue to, uh, as, a, as a community, to continue to offer our, our heartfelt condolences, our support and our prayers for the, uh, for the victims of a heinous and an unconscionable uh, hate crime. The Muslims of Al-Nur Mosque and Linwood Mosque in New Zealand um, 50 some odd people who lost their lives. Uh, just taking a moment to uh, pray for their uh, ascendance to paradise and pray for their, their families and the communities uh, and for us all. I mean, um, if I could ask you, as the blog editor for Hot Hijab, uh, could you first, first, could you talk about the the role that you are in right now uh, about the the about Hot Hijab as an organization as a company, and then maybe give us a uh, some some insight as to the path that that you're on with or, or that the organization is on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm actually glad that we started with um, focusing on New Zealand because this was one of the things I was tasked with with coming to this position as blog editor at Hot Hijab, you know, and they've been around for. A while now, several years, you know, run by Melanie Turk and her husband, Ahmed Zidane. And um, they, uh, you know, so they're, they're a hijab company and they sell, you know, what are some beautiful, beautiful hijabs. And But I was brought on as their blog editor to not only, you know, help cover the world of modesty and fashion and hijab and all that stuff, but also, more importantly, to really build community and to, um, you know, create content and coverage that covers everything pertaining to Muslim American women, actually Muslim women at large, really. And so it was in that context that, you know, when when we heard the horrible news about New Zealand, I mean, one might think, this is a hijab company, what is there to say? But it really was upon all of us, you know, to take some time and to mourn what has happened. And it really affected all of us. I think Muslims, wherever you are, 
whoever you are, it really affected all of us. And I wrote a piece on Friday um, offering our condolences and, and different ways that communities can help out, places to donate, also different uh, resources for processing grief and trauma. Mm-hmm. And these, these are important things for us to pause and really take some time and absorb um, and mourn and, and learn how to deal with this stuff because um, I don't know of anyone who was surprised, honestly speaking, um, at least not in my world, uh, in, in the journalism world. I've been covering Muslims in, in America and at large for oh, nearly two decades. And and it was shocking and awful and terrible and just, you know, so sad, but yeah. not really a surprise, you know? Well, I think especially considering that it was uh, it was only a few months ago that we were um, that we were all engrossed in the horror of an attack uh, on a synagogue, a tree of, tree of life synagogue. Tree of life, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that this this recurrence of violence um, as, as a result of white supremacist ideologies, um, this I guess it is something that we have to a degree become dare I say, uh, you know, desensitized to, to some degree, as far as not being surprised by it. Um, but, yeah. but, but what did you think, uh, what did you think when you saw Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, wearing hijab, uh, speaking to uh, two Muslims uh, and expressing the, uh, the, the, the deep sadness and the, the shared sadness of the New Zealand people with the Muslim community of New Zealand? Uh, did anything, what, what thoughts came to mind looking at that particular image? You know, I mean, I think when you're in the position of being the leader of a country, you know, it, it, it's very multifaceted and complicated. And and what I saw was a woman who, you know, really, you know, took a hold of the situation and led with empathy and led with, you know, grief and empathy and friendship. And the things that she did, you know, wearing the hijab when meeting with Muslim community members, I mean, I have seen other leaders do that before, but that in combination with her language, with, you know, her focusing on the victims, with her choosing uh, not to uh, say the name of the perpetrator, you know, and she said in a news conference, I'm not going to use his name. We're not going to give him the notoriety that he wants. And she's urging everyone else not to do that as well. You know, with saying they're going to be passing stricter gun laws within 24 hours of this happening, I mean, if that didn't happen after Newtown in the U.S., what are we going to say? And, and in New Zealand, this is how they're rising to the occasion. And so, you know, she's she's such a young leader. You know, she's a, a mother of a baby, and she's, what, 38 years old, I think. Yeah. And she's just really showing um, the way one can handle this with just love and dignity and empathy and sympathy and this is how you lead with a community, you know? Yeah. And um, I think this is what we needed to see. I mean, n- none of it should have happened. None of it should have happened, but it did. And, and I'm glad that we're seeing her emerge in the way she is. Mm. You know, the, uh, the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, the picture of her taking on probably what, what many would call the most um, targeted image uh, in Islam, which is the yes. Muslim woman in hijab. Yes. Um, I, I, what what do you think will be the outcome, or do you think that's something that is 
that is lost maybe on, on on Western viewers? I mean, it might be per se, but I really think at this moment in time, who needed to feel that were Muslims around the world. Mm-hmm. And Western viewers, sure. I mean, I do think subtly, it sh- you know, maybe it had some uh, impact in, in deconstructing this idea of the, you know, the scary hijabi Muslim women. I don't know. Maybe it did. I hope it did. But more than anything, it spoke to Muslims in New Zealand, in Australia, in Asia, America, around the world, you know, about that this is just a simple act of respect, you know, for us, for our faith, for our, um, you know, for our drive and what we do. And it's just, it's a lot of respect that she showed that was very much appreciated. And I know there's been arguments, you know, about, you know, wear a hijab, try to understand what it's like to be a Muslim woman and how you can't do that by wearing it. But I mean, I've been covering Muslims in America for a long time now. And I I think there's some benefit to it. I think it's about the intention with which one does it. And I believe her intentions were just, you know, really sincere in what she did. Yeah. And it meant something to us. Yeah. Uh, in the time that you've been covering uh, Muslims in America, have the attitudes towards hijab, uh, towards hijab um, have they changed? Uh, and if so, uh, how have you witnessed that change? It has uh, changed and evolved a lot in the past um, nearly two decades that I've been at this work. Um, I think there's been a fair amount of uh, politicizing of the hijab, mm-hmm. not only by the way some of some Muslim women you know, choose to wear it or for whatever reasons they may choose to wear it, but also how it's politicized uh, and demonized in the media at times. You know, um, It's like the go-to image for any type of Muslim story is some woman in a hijab doing something or another. And there's, there's constantly coverage of it. And I remember uh, thinking for a while that I never want to do another story about the hijab. I mean, it's just over <laughs> and over and over. No, seriously, over and over and over. That's anyone that that's all anyone wants to talk about. But now here I am at Hot Hijab. It isn't that interesting, right? Right. right. Because I, I've learned that, um, if that's where the focus still lies, then there's something to this story and there's more nuances to it and more angles to it than we're not realizing because it's still a fascinating and uh, deep story to people outside of Muslim faith, mm-hmm. to people who are Muslim as well. It's continuing to be, you know, a topic that that is warranting discussion time and time again. And so if that's the case, why not put myself in a position where I can help elevate the stories that need to be heard, right? Right. And the stories that are being missed. And, you know, to kind of approach it from uh, different angles and show um, the human faces behind a piece of cloth, right? Right. And why, and and the various amounts of reasons that we, you know, we choose to wear it or don't choose to wear it or take it off or what it means in all those different aspects, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, there have been Sikh men, uh, there have been, uh, would have been identified phenotypically, um, uh, men identified as Muslims who were not Muslim uh, and right. who, who have, you know, uh, uh, borne the brunt of, you know, of, of hate, of violent attacks. But when it comes to women, it is, you almost never hear about a woman um, who in hijab being mistaken for 
a Muslim, right? If you see a woman in hijab, it's just pretty much 99.9, yeah. I, I would say 100% of the time, that it is a Muslim. Now, right. that, that being the case where uh, that is the most visible uh, representation of Islam in, uh, you know, in society, do you find the, the lack of, or do you feel there is a lack of media representation when it comes to uh, speaking, uh, hearing the voices of Muslims? Um, do you find that that voice is, is not featured, is not heard as, uh, as, as much as it should be, especially in, in, uh, in, in comparison to its, uh, its representation in society, its clear representation? I mean, it's an interesting question that you ask, and honestly, having you know been in the world of media for my entire career, mm -hmm. from college and on out, um, I see growth. I see a lot of growth. It's not happening nearly fast enough, or in as diverse a way that it should. Um, but at the same time, from when I entered this profession to where I am now, it has changed significantly, tremendously. Um, just not just from seeing on air people in hijab or um, in who they are and what they do, but also behind the scenes, just seeing the amount of uh, journalists, you know, at different media outlets, major media outlets, Muslim led media outlets, wear hijab, don't wear hijab. But like, um, I have definitely seen growth. Hmm. That being said, I'm in a unique position. This is what I've been covering Muslim communities from for a long time now. Right. And I monitor this, and I immerse myself in this, and so I see it. Mm -hmm. But if you're someone who is, you know, a regular person in their home watching the news, it still may not seem like it's happening fast enough, that it's not strong enough. I mean, the example of New Zealand and the fact that in the first 48 hours, most of the news coverage failed to feature Muslims on camera. I mean, it, this right. was a massacre of Muslims. There should have been Muslim people, pundits, journalists, activists, mm, people in uh, roles of um, trauma and, and counseling, they should have been those people on camera, right? right? So it's still an area. It'll always continue to be an area that needs to improve. From the inside, though, I do see growth. And that, that is heartening to me. Yeah. Well, and, and, that, and that representation, even if it's not in front of the camera or, or behind the microphone, it definitely, it definitely contributes to how, uh, how stories are told. So, uh, that, definitely. yeah, so that, that's definitely, definitely a plus. Um, what are your thoughts on the, uh, on the, the diversity of reporting when, uh, in regard to the Muslim community in the U.S.? I, I think there's a lot of growth to be had there. Um, I think we have uh, spent a lot of time focused on immigrant Muslim communities, and not that there was anything wrong in that, but I think there is much, my, much more diversity in many more, I'm sorry about that, many more no communities um, out there that are um, needing to be covered. So one of the main things that I learned in my career early on, or actually not too, not too early on, it should have been early on, but it really was maybe about 10 years ago, was even the fact that we shouldn't refer to ourselves as a Muslim community. Mm -hmm. We're a group of communities, yes. plural. Yes. You know, we are a group of diverse communities, you know, with a lot of different backgrounds. We have people who are, you know, uh, converts to Islam, born born Muslim from different parts of the world who are native to the U.S., you know, and whose stories aren't being told. 
And I find that right now, um, as we are growing in the, in in, uh, in on-air personalities and being in the media and this and that, it still tends to be a handful of voices. Um, and that can be frustrating from time to time. At the same time, it's heartening because that those handful of voices, we didn't even have that uh, five, ten years ago. So that's something. That being said, I'm hoping and I'm and I'm looking to those who are in a position to have on air time or to be out there or even behind the scenes to be elevating other voices, to be passing the mic, to be, you know, um, uplifting stories that are not being heard because it's communities plural. It's not a single community. And we forget that too often, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of uh, Muslims as a, mo- as a monolith. Um, not at all. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> uh, but do you think, do you think that the Muslim community itself um, is aware of that diversity or, or really pays attention to it uh, when it comes to, uh, especially when, when it comes to uh, a social agenda or political agenda uh, that we that we make the assumption that we all have the same priorities? I think we're aware of it on a surface level. I think we're becoming more aware, but I think there's a lot more depth to our growing that has to happen. Um, I think there's a lot more listening that we need to do to each other as communities and a lot more collaboration that we need to do. And I think it's it's too easy to get into a position where you have some sort of power and some sort of influence in various circles and not realizing that there are other communities that need to be uplifted and brought up with you. Um, it's, it's an area where we can grow, I think, in not just making partnerships on a surface level, but making really true deep partnerships, you know, the kind of, not when we talk about allies, we're, we're talking about allies to the Muslim community, but I also think there's a lot to probe and, and understand about being allies to each other as a variety of communities mm. within the folds of Islam, you know? Mm. And um, it, there's, I think at times we tend to be still a little too insular. South Asians with South Asians and Middle Eastern people with Middle Eastern people and Native, Native Muslims, you know, in their communities, and we're not... Um, taking the time to really understand and learn from each other the way we should. Uh, It's happening. It needs to happen on a deeper level, though, I think. Yes. You know, uh, it's odd that this makes me think about the the hijab. uh, Yeah. In its diversity, um, right? The same cloth, uh, same fabric, but worn in different ways, uh, you know, by by different uh, women who have different uh, uh, different backgrounds, different, you know, just different, uh, different likes and, 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 and dislikes, uh, that, that have a, that have a grounding often in the communities that they're associated with. Um, right. it really is a symbol of the diversity, uh, of the Muslim community. Um, do you think that, do you think diversity is actually something that is, that is pushed back against by some in the uh, Muslim community, where some want to see us really as that monolith, and and they do push back against anything that they see as going outside of the lo- what they understand to be the lines. But I do, I do think there is a facet of that that continues to happen, where perhaps you know some people may feel like we need to all identify as Muslims. Full stop. That's it. Yeah. Um, and under the folds of Islam, and that should be enough. But the fact remains is that, you know, we are a diverse uh, community of followers, and 
And those communities are dealing with a lot of different things. You know, what uh, black American Muslims are dealing with are different than what, you know, immigrant Muslim communities are dealing with than what South Asian communities are. And I mean, we all have nuances to what have been our struggles and uh, our challenges throughout the years. And um, to and I think sometimes there are, you know, and perhaps it's more, I would say, the elders of the community uh, who might try to, you know, not take the time to understand those difficulties and those challenges and be like, you know, we're all Muslims and that should be enough. And mm-hmm. um, maybe it should be enough. But the fact is, is that we have a lot of things to work through uh, in in regards to how we have behaved with each other and how we have embraced each other and how we have stood up for each other and the lack thereof, all of those things. And, and those and those issues, you know, must be dealt with because those are, you know, real things that people are dealing with. Yeah. So if I don't take the time to understand my writers who are black Muslim Americans and what their set of challenges are and what they want to be writing about, um, then I'm not doing my due diligence, you know, Absolutely. As, a, as an editor. I'm not. Absolutely. Now, is there a particular uh, insight of are there particular qualities that you look for in the writers that you bring on? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, when I'm bringing writers onto Hod Hijab, I'm looking, you know, I'm looking to find writers who have expertise in, in different areas of uh, Muslim life and um, culture and religion and, and and fashion, of course, and, and modesty and hijab and all that stuff. Right. So um, I'm looking for what their you know, areas of expertise are, what their strengths are. Obviously, I'm looking for um, their skills in writing and their research skills and, you know, their their style of how they write and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I came to Hot Hijab, I, there were two writers who were already working for us, and that was fantastic to have. Mm-hmm. And then I've been hiring, bringing on some other writers um, who can cover different areas that are not being covered well. And uh, and I, from behind the scenes, I'm, I'm writing for the site as well, so I plug in any holes that I can plug in but I also have to realize that um, I'm not the you know I have a, a, a wide variety of expertise as an editor and a journalist but at the same time uh, back to our conversation that we're a, a group of communities mm-hmm. I'm not the expert on all facets and all angles of this community my job is to know as much as I can because that's that's my beat that's what I cover Right. But at the same time, um, I need different writers who can cover different parts of those communities for me. And so those are some of the things that I look for. Mm. Okay. Now, uh, I'd like to uh, talk okay. a bit more about your the work that you do, uh, your personal blog, Muslima Next Door. Uh, and what sure. really, uh, one of the things that caught my eye here uh, was the autism advocacy uh, work yeah. that you do. And. Do you think, especially with regard to the Muslim community, that this is a uh, a segment of the community that is, uh, aside from your advocacy and, uh, and and maybe others, but that that needs more, uh, that needs more engagement? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like a question I'm going to be saying all day, every day. We need more engagement. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think, you know, uh, so I have been working in autism advocacy work for a long time. My eldest son uh, is uh, autistic. He's mm-hmm. 18 now. And so as long as he, I've been his mother, that's as long as I've been working on autism issues 
um, at large and also within our Muslim communities. And there, there's a lot of work to be get, to be done around the area of disability inclusion and disability awareness, not just with autism, but with disabilities at large. Mm-hmm. And it's been um, really um, heartening to see certain organizations take note of this. And then groups like Muslim, Muslims Understanding and Helping Special Education Needs, uh, groups like that come about and really come into their own uh, with the types of projects and outreach that they're doing around the country and now in different areas of the world, um, it's really heartening because uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I felt like I was a lone voice. You know, I chose to go to be public with our family story mm-hmm. and I chose to call things out that I felt that needed to be called out and I chose to demand, you know, action and change within our masajids and our community centers and within the mindsets of Muslims, you know, I think there was too much, uh, too much um, stereotyping and uh, negative perceptions of people with disabilities. And, you know, the whole idea that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't be talking about it and it should be hidden within the folds of the home. And I'm not for any of that Mm. at all, Mm. you know, and I demand my community around me to be accepting of us as we are who we are, all of us. Right. And it's nice to see that the growth, with, as with everything, is, is really slow. And the benefits and the things that are growing now are happening um, in ways that I wanted to happen faster. My son's already 18, and we've already lost a lot of precious years. Uh, but at the same time, if it doesn't happen for me and my family, it's okay. I'm like, I'm happy to see it happening for other families, you know, right. inclusion in the masjid, different programming. Uh, Muslim has put on two umrahs where they they take um, uh, families with disabilities for umrah. I oh, mean, mashallah. where was that? Mashallah, right? I mean, I couldn't even have thought about that uh, five years ago. And they, they're already planning, I, I think I'm right, it's either their third or fourth. I believe it's their third. They're already planning their third umrah for December, January. So it's it's really lovely to see things like that. You know, there appears to be, I guess it's, it's kind of like the uh, the momentum or the inertia of uh, the, the larger system, uh, social system. It tends to replicate itself in the smaller ones. So uh, even throughout uh, the different faith com- communities, um, that the engagement with special needs uh, individuals, uh, I guess there's, there is there is uh, kind of a a mindset that says that these are individuals that are not worthy to be engaged or that uh, can't be contributors to uh, community life. Uh, they only right. exist in the space of being uh, the recipients of charity. Uh, so I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts, especially in regard to special needs individuals being allowed to uh to contribute to that to community life because i think you know that's what we all want as individuals we want to be able to to give something of ourselves to the uh to the collective now i am so happy to have you asking that question because this is something i'm very passionate about because there is nothing further from the truth you know that whole idea of uh people with disabilities, you know, people who are autistic or have other, you know, physical or cognitive disabilities that they're the recipients of support and aid and they don't have contributions to make. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and um, 
alhamdulillah, they're, they're <laughs> I mean, I think we all have a basic human right, you know, to be part of the society and to be fulfilling members of the society. And if we, if we cannot open our eyes to see what there is to gain, then we are the losers in that. Because I even look at, I look at my own son and he's profoundly autistic. He, he has a lot of support that he needs and it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging life. But at the same time, anyone who is in part of his world, I mean, I feel they're benefiting as humans and their characters are growing um, by interacting with him. And it's not coming from a place of, you know, sympathy or, oh, he's so inspirational, but just genuine interactions, right? Mm -hmm. Genuine interactions will teach you a lot about what it means to be, uh, you know, what it means to be a human what it means to um, stand up for dignity and respect for everyone around you, what it means to be truly to be a person's brother or a person's sister, right? Mm -hmm. What it means to, um, what the benefits are of, uh, you know, creating programs of inclusion. Um, it's not just to benefit the person with the disability, their family benefits, their community, their community benefits, it's a it's a it's a win-win for everybody and when you choose not to when you choose to see them you know with just you know sympathy or feeling sorry for a person i mean you're really doing a disservice to that person and to their whole family mm. because they have a lot to give back at, as well um oh, i could go on about this for so long <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it what you're saying it really it it it, it speaks to the uh the, i guess the habit of yeah. being able to look at or point out uh, what we look at as someone else's deficiencies and define them Absolutely. according to those, uh, but then also not being able to see our own uh, because they don't manifest in the same way. Uh, right. So uh, I, I, I I appreciate I appreciate those uh, those words. Um, yeah. We yeah. are. We are we are coming up to our uh, to our exit time. But before we have to uh, get out here, I wanted to ask you uh, if there were if there was anything uh, in particular, any upcoming events or anything that the listeners should know about uh, regarding um, Hot Hijab uh, that you wanted to share. Well, we actually just finished uh, an event, a partnership with um uh, I think one of your frequent uh, guests on your program, Leila Palouse, and she had a, a Black Muslim Authors event uh, up in New York last month that we were partnering with that went really well. I was really excited to see the turnout for that and to really uh, introduce our readers at Hot Hijab to the litany of wonderful authors out there that they might not even know about. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a couple events coming up. Melanie has got a couple uh uh, talking events, speeches coming up around um, the U.S. and in Canada, I believe. And I think there, uh, another thing that we're working on from a community perspective is helping to sponsor different, um, like uh, mothers and daughters teas and social events at different massages around um, the country. And also, uh, I think one of the things they're working on with, uh, I can't remember which masjid it was in Texas, but like, um, Offering up hijabs to uh, be in the masjid for people coming in and needing one to pray, just to like fill those hijab closets up. Oh, That's something nice. working around. Yeah, we started with a masjid in Texas, and I think we're looking at doing it with a couple in Maryland and other places. We were brainstorming about where different massages where we can partner up with. So 
a lot of good things to come. We're also planning on, um, well, I mean, we're, we're planning on uh, hoping to be on a panel at ISNA. We're pitching a panel. We'll see if it's included or not. Okay. Uh, because it's, it's that process right now, panels being included and, and all those different things. So we're pitching a panel to be at ISNA, and I'm hoping that's going to come to fruition as well. So a lot of exciting things, inshallah. Looking forward to Ramadan coverage. Yes. And uh, a lot of good stuff happening. This month we're doing a lot of uh, women's, uh, um, women's History Month coverage, a lot of good interviews happening on the site. Um, yeah, come and check it out. So, yeah, so- a lot of good content. So give our give our listeners the uh, contact info, uh, social media, all that good stuff, so they can stay uh, connected. Sure. So um, our website is hodhijab.com. The blog is on the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're at, on Twitter at, at @hodhijab. We're on Instagram at @hodhijab, and there's also another page called HH Spotted Club, which is about you know spotting different women wearing our products. And um, Facebook is at Hijab as well. So it's the same name everywhere. You can find us. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sister Dilshad, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I hope to be able to uh, have you on again in the future. We'd love to hear your perspective on just any number of things. Uh, I would love to. I would love to. Yes. So, uh, Radio Islam folks, uh, our, our guest has been Dilshad Ali. She is the blog editor at Hijab. Uh, we thank you once again for coming on the program. And uh, we pray for for you and your family's uh, continued well-being. I mean, thank you so much. All right. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam, and we're on WCEV 1450 AM. Sweet strawberry icing. You're in goodwill and just past that vintage denim jacket you spot miniature donut earrings you lean in ah that's the scent of shopping success because at goodwill every item you buy funds local job training and more so bring home those donut earrings and bring home so much good to your community goodwill bring good home brought to you by goodwill and the ad council you're not wired to have a response to this sound but when we introduce a new stimulus save the food We're helping to stop food waste. Save the food. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends, odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we are streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, family. Uh, we have joining us in studio the executive director of the Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicagoland, uh, Brother Gregory Abdullah Mitchell, and we welcome him to the show once again. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, Brother Tariq. Um, thank you for inviting me here this afternoon. Yes, sir. So, uh, CLGC has an exciting, I think it's exciting, has an exciting uh, event coming up that has been carried on for the past, what is it, 10 years now, right? 11. 11, 11 this year. Okay. Uh, we're talking about the Illinois Muslim Action Day. That's the right. The Day of Advocacy for the Muslim Community in Springfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. provides our community an opportunity to speak one on one with our elected officials, state senators, state representatives, to raise with them issues of importance to our community. And um, this year, there's a, there are a number of important issues, I think, that we want to bring to the attention of the legislator, and I think the uh, legislature, and I think it, re- unfortunately, it, it all arose uh, this past Friday with the, uh, the mass shootings down in, at two separate masjids down in, in, in church, uh, Christchurch, New, New Zealand. Yes. Um, and what it really reflects is how this, this hate speech is now taking too, is becoming too deeply rooted in the psyche of, of, of many people and it's causing people to take the next step and that's violence. Mm-hmm. It's tragic when people have assembled in a house of worship, a place of refuge and to be gunned down defenseless it 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 strikes a fear and unnerves many people of are we safe in our houses our houses of worship we saw the same thing less than six or really about six months ago in pittsburgh at the tree of life synagogue yeah and go back a couple of years then we go the, the shooting at, at the at the church and in, in mother Emanuel church yes man yeah. church so it we have a serious social problem in our society and really the world society and how to deal with people who are different than us, whether it's uh, race, whether it's, or whether it's religion, ethnicity, even uh, gender orientation. Mm-hmm. All of these uh, issues are, are, are these Let's say these these issues are are ones that are now be, becoming the subject of uh, hate, hate speech, and now we see even now uh, acts of physical violence. Right, right. You know um, what this also puts a light on for us right now is how we've responded 
as a community in terms of how we want our laws to reflect uh, to reflect our, our our rejection of violence rooted <clears throat> violence that is the that is the product of hate. Um, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Uh, Dr. King famously said, Mor "Morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless." Um, and I bring that up because the response that um, that New, uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, she immediately thought about what can be done from a from a uh, legislative standpoint uh, with regard to um, uh, firearms. You know, what can be done? What can we do as a uh, legislative body to address this? And that's something that we, we hear a lot of talk when we have mass shootings, you know, whether it was Sandy Hook or whether uh, it happened in a house of worship, Tree of Life or Mother Emanuel. Um, but there's not often any real, um, any real change as far as uh, legis uh, legislation is concerned. Um, so how important... How important is it, and what are some of the things uh, legislatively uh, is IMAD? Are we looking for on the IMAD agenda? And I know, I know, uh, gun violence was heavily uh, a part of last year's um, uh, day of advocacy. What are some of the things that we're looking for this year? Yes, well, uh, the uh, reduction of, of gun violence remains an issue. Uh, a point, a point of concern. I mean, another issue that uh, dominated our our, um, our agenda from last year is even in, in terms of the treatment of immigrants and refugees. Uh, now, once again, we're dealing with state legislature. We're not dealing with the federal government. It really has primary jurisdiction. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we can't not be concerned about how we as a state treat refugees when they come here. You know, I mean, there are... Uh, in children who are separated from their parents. It means separation doesn't mean they're just going to be in one cell block and another. We have children that are separated. Their parents are at the border and they're here in the, in, in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And and they're, you're, we're talking about youth who oftentimes can't speak the language and really are not equipped to address uh, legal proceedings here and uh, in the states, and 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 there is one law that is attempting to address that, to permit um, a uh, an attorney on behalf of a minor to receive a special treatment based on uh, on their status and disability. And when I say disability, I'm not talking about a physical disability. I mean, in other words, being ill-equipped to address the rigors of, of, of the defense in the legal system. Mm -hmm. These are, I mean, some of the things that, that we're looking at. Also, the fact that when we start talking about having a fair trial, a trial should not be uh, predicated by using, um, let's say, identifiers just like it says oh if i'm a muslim then then we as and once again you see that's being the thread that runs through all this hate speech when someone's status automatically there's assumptions that are built in about that person and how they will act and what they will do well there is legislation here in the in the state of illinois a proposal that um will not permit the status of an uh uh 
the immigration status of a person to be used uh, as evidence in the court because one should be found uh, innocent, uh, guilty or innocent based on the actual evidence, not based on the, let's say, preconceived notions or presumptions that people are now manufacturing in their minds because someone is an immigrant, someone is uh, uh, a Muslim, right. uh, or et cetera. Right, right. So, <clears throat> so this year, um, 4 11, it's, uh, it's interesting, we, April 11th, the 11th year of IMAD. Uh, what are some of the things that, that our young people in particular, uh, those who have an interest in public service, uh, that they can gain from, uh, could you talk a bit about how uh, the, that PAGE program in particular? Yes, uh, uh, once again, the, the, we're, we're sponsoring a, a PAGE program. What the PAGE program is, it's a opportunity to shadow a state representative or state senator for a day in Springfield. That way uh, the young junior or high, uh, senior in high school can get a direct one-on-one -on -one experience and what does it mean? What the obligations? What does a state senator or do? How are laws made in our state? How are they processed? How how are things negotiated to even get a resolution so a law actually gets passed? This is a, a unique opportunity and, and we have students uh, take advantage of that. Uh, Muslim students in the community take advantage of that. If they can just go to our website, there's a link to it where you can file an application for it and they need to get busy because we're about ready to make uh, in the next week make final determinations but it still is a good opportunity for young people to be involved in it now not everybody uh, we don't have, there's not enough slots for everybody to become a page mm -hmm. but there are also opportunities uh, to uh, partake taking activities in terms even if there's certain tours that are available uh, of the of the state capitol also to sit on various hearings that may be of interest but i would say probably a, the thing that i would i would advocate with our young people mm -hmm. that's going to have a direct impact on them is to encourage the participation of all residents of the state of illinois to uh, fill out their census do you realize that right now, based on the, the exodus of people leaving the state of Illinois and the fact that as a state we have undercounted, significantly undercounted the number of people uh, living in the state of Illinois, right now we're at the risk of losing up to two uh, federal uh, rep representatives in the, in the House of Representatives. Mm. That also translates in a loss of dollars right. in federal in federal funds and that and we're not talking millions we're talking billions of dollars and in a state where we have the fiscal crisis that we do have here it's important that every citizen every resident of the state of Illinois do all with it all that is in their individual capacity to help combat this problem and the most easiest way they can do is take out the time uh, when the census taker comes or when he receives an email to fill it out and complete it. I mean, I think, this is a I critical now, issue for us. I think now um, this is the first time that people have been able to access uh, or fill those forms out online. Right. Right. Yeah, and so. I mean, and there, there's, there will be efforts. Uh, the state legislature has a couple bills now that are being considered and, and we're looking at them, evaluate to how we may support them to encourage people to participate. You know, you know, the federal government is ramping up for 
uh, securing individuals to, in essence, become employed as uh, census takers right. uh, during uh, next year, 2020. But there's also an effort that's important to carry the message that I'm trying to share with your audience today, the importance of us uh, partake, uh, participating and actually filling out the forms and being counted in the census. Because there's so many things that, 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 the, that, that our census level is the linchpin for. As I say, it's going to determine how many, if we're going to lose representatives in the state of Illinois. And clearly, the, for every, and, and, and it's more than a dollar for dollar for every person that fails to actually register, we're losing lots and lots of money. I mean, when we start talking about billions of dollars and we start thinking about the social programs that we're still trying to fund, mm -hmm. if those monies are gone, what is going to be the status of those programs in Illinois? It's going to be then, will it mean, oh, we have to have more taxes? I mean, if we all have to collect uh, collectively join in ways to combat these problems and the way that every citizen in the, uh, every citizen resident in Illinois can help is by participating in the census. Do you think that uh, immigration status uh, and fear of, of prosecution, um, that that is going to uh, adversely affect that count? There's no question about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you you have people that that that. Uh, who are who are undocumented have denied denied themselves many benefits because of fear of being being uh, uh, deported, and without getting into the merits of why we the why or the why not, the reality of it they are an integral part of this society here in the state of Illinois, at bring much contributions to the well being of the state, and if we lose that. Then we we all stand to lose, and I mean that's the whole fight about the census uh, citizenship question on the on the the census because then people are afraid whether it's real or not. But it I mean yeah. it is a real fear mm -hmm. that this will be a basis to identify them and then therefore uh, uh, get them deported. So no, I don't want them to participate in that. Right. So I mean this is another. Concerned that all citizens of Illinois should be concerned about because once again, it's having it. It will have a impact on this state in terms of lost revenue and then compromised representation in the in the House of Representatives, United States House of Representatives. It's interesting that those two things are not often spoken of together uh, when we talk about um, immigrants. We talk about those people who are. Uh, trying to acquire citizenship or here who have uh, claimed asylum, um, that folks at large who have been kind of programmed to have a negative view of those people uh, but don't realize that their removal, uh, you know, it could have a significant impact on their, on their quality of life, on their voices being heard uh, in our, you know, in, in the federal government. Yeah, there's no question, and, and unfortunately, really, this when we speak about, I'm going to kind of run, run, run an end round on this issue because when we start talking about Islamophobia, what are we talking about? A hate directed at one group of people, those people who believe in Islam, and what's it based on? And manufactured fears of of of, of being threatened and being insecure. When the, the the this violence is being perpetrated by those people who supposedly are at risk, mm -hmm. so 
with these keeping all these things in mind is we have to fight back against the the hate the hate speech to recognize and evaluate people as as they are as individuals we have many people who are undocumented and when we speak of DACA, the the those children who came here with their parents and and yet the debate goes on people say all we were concerned about them but yet the legislature our the leadership from the white house through the congress has failed to take the steps to protect undocumented uh, residents in the state, uh, in the United States, and 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 the challenges that we face here in Illinois. So, all of these things you can, as you as you just pointed out, they're interconnected. And where do we begin? Well, first we have to begin with the first vestige of, let's say, false, false fears, mm-hmm. is getting people to come out and participate, fill out. The census forms be participate in the census. Um, it's it is critical uh, for the well being, our collective well being here in the state of Illinois. Mm. So on April eleventh, um, we will be looking at the eleventh Illinois Muslim Action Day. Now this is an all day event, right? Yes, we the day starts uh, early eight a.m. where we host. A breakfast for our legislators. It's a time to get to have some one-on-one contact with our elect officials down there in Springfield. That'll be at the uh, State House Inn. Um, that's about an hour, hour and a half. And then after that, we will uh, be holding a uh, uh, meetings with legislators that who've uh, agreed to meet with us, and we'll be calling on uh, legislators who we're not to be able to secure to share with them the concerns of what we have, not only with the census, Islamophobia more particularly, and some of the bills that I've mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, but to get them, those legislators acquainted uh, with our community as residents, as citizens of this state, sharing the commonality that we have in terms of the concerns for the well-being of, uh, of this state and, and, and all those that live in it. So. For those, uh, for those students who are interested in uh, possibly getting one of those or being considered for one of those um, a few spots as a page, they would need to do what? Whether, go to www.ciogc.org. www.ciogc.org. That's our website. On the website, uh, there, there there is uh, uh, links to applying for uh, pages and and let me make another uh, more uh, a plug just as important. We need our members of our community to also come down. It is, it is, it's not enough for us to hold prayer vigils and mourn and offer condolences for those slaughtered as a result of the hate speech the product of hate speech, which I call, which I'm, I'm asserting is due, uh, the violence asserted is directly related to this hate speech. But it's not enough to have just prayer vigils. It's important that we once again could go down in mass to the, to the legislature, our state legislature, and let them know 
that this type of behavior is, uh, it, we cannot no longer tolerate it. It is tearing at the fabric of our country when you can't feel safe even in a place of worship. Mm -hmm. Things must be done. Now, I'm not going to sit here and, and say I have all the answers because I don't. But one thing I can say is that it is important that we elevate this as an issue of concern that needs to be addressed by our legislator. I know it's not even how do we look at how should these people be punished? What should be the what methods can be done to uh, arrest some of the hateful speech? Uh, these are some of the things that are the, the ultimate effect that we would like to re uh, arrive at. How do we do that? And I mean, sensitive to the right to free speech. No one's trying to take that right of free speech away. Mm -hmm. But even free speech has its limits, as recognized in the law. When you're going to, when we're getting to the point where the, the level of rhetoric is energizing or motivating people to actually take matters in their own hands and then come into a place of worship and just literally mow down, shoot, and slaughter innocent people, time, something must change. And this is what we Absolutely. need to have the legislature understand. This is no longer acceptable. Absolutely. So, uh, Radio Islam family, you have the date, April 11th. You have the website, CLGC.org. Uh, go there, get your information. Uh, if you have young folks, get them signed up so that they can uh, participate in this process. And hopefully uh, we're looking forward. I I'm certainly planning on attending myself. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, a, a nice showing uh, from our diverse and large community. Inshallah. If I can say one thing to, oh, to, your, to the Radio Islam family. Yeah. This is the issue that impacts every one of you. It can affect your child in school in terms of bullying. It can affect uh, how you're treated at work or even in the public space. We need you to come to, sh to share with your legislators, legislators the importance of, this, uh, of responding to this problem that is growing worldwide. Please join us April 11th in Springfield. Thank you. All right. And thank you, uh, Brother Mitchell. All right, Radio Islam family, that was uh, Brother Abdullah Mitchell, the uh, executive director of CLGC. So uh, we thank you for tuning in for another edition of Radio Islam. We'd like to thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.